It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents. Listener discretion is advised. When the United Kingdom's Atomic Energy Authority was set up in 1954, they were given a wide-ranging remit to put Britain at the forefront of the emerging atomic age. Two of the main goals of the authority was to support the development of atomic weapons as a deterrent after the world having seen the destructive power of such devices in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945, and the other was to harvest the potential of the atom to power the country through nuclear reactors to replace the depleting resources of the time in coal and oil. Atoms for war and atoms for peace, as it was termed in the corridors of power. Many of the citizens of the world agreed and felt a sense of what was termed nuclear optimism, believing that the future would be forever defined by the positive power of splitting the atom. The launch of the first Atomic Energy Authority approved reactor was opened in 1956 at Calder Hall to produce weapons-grade plutonium. Then in February of 1966, Dunray in Scotland received an entirely new breed of nuclear reactor, putting it on the world's nuclear map. The UK was now in full nuclear swing. However, not everyone was swayed by the idea. 
even by the late 1950s, barely a decade on from their inception. Accidents at nuclear power plants had caused the death of thousands, as well as the irradiation of hundreds of thousands. Then, in October of 1962, the world sat bleakly on the brink of assured mutual destruction from atomic weaponry during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Still, the UK kept on its relentless nuclear march, determined to use the power of tomorrow, today. By the end of the 1970s, after the repeated close misses of the nuclear industry, culminating in the Three Mile Island incident in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, much of the nuclear optimism worldwide had died down to mere hushed tones and like-minded groups. Nuclear waste was also becoming an issue. Nobody had informed the public at the time that the waste from these sites would be harmful to their health and the environment for decades at best and millennia at worst. Still, governments saw their own benefits in well-run nuclear reactors and the UK kept their existing sites in operation and built new ones to bulk up their atomic estate, despite widespread public criticism. In 1979, a year with incredible levels of public disharmony and energy industry strikes across the UK, Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government once again reaffirmed their commitment to nuclear energy and building reactors yearly. This decision was partly to address a demand and partly retribution against the strikers within the oil and gas industry of the time. This raised one key question for many. Where was all this nuclear waste going to go? As it turned out, there was a plan in place for some of it. Mulwarker Hill in Dumfries and Galloway, a remote hill in the southwest of Scotland, had been proposed in 1978 as a potential nuclear waste dump site. The initial application from the Atomic Energy Authority had been thrown out in late 1978. By 1979, despite opposition from the council, the force of Thatcher's political will brought the issue back into the public view again. A prominent Scottish solicitor and political commentator, Willie McRae, was one of the most vocal critics of the plan lending his legal expertise to the campaign against the Mulwarker site and leading many of the protests against the Atomic Energy Authority's plans. In 1980, the plans drew their final breath. With the final appeal rejected, Willie McRae and his anti-nuclear comrades were able to celebrate a win as their very own David against Goliath. As the losing legal team and AEA authorities left the court and hurried to their cars. Willie McRae stood on the courthouse steps and told the government that should they wish to dump their nuclear waste, they should do so where Guy Fox had stored his gunpowder. Guy Fox had attempted to blow up Parliament in 1605 with secretly stored gunpowder beneath the Houses of Parliament. While this was just rhetoric, it was safe to say that this specific incident and his statement thereafter meant that Willie McRae 
was not well liked within the corridors of power. When he promised to fight every incidence of nuclear dumping in Scotland from that day until the end of his days, he may well have made himself a target. I'm Jess, and this is Skinwalker. Willie McRae was born in Carron, a town near Falkirk, which sits around 25 miles from Edinburgh in 1923. His only sibling, his brother Fergus. Throughout his childhood, he was recognised as a precocious talent. He just seemed wiser than his years and cleverer than a child of his age had any right to be. He was brave too, forever daring. In 1939, just before his 16th birthday, he signed up as a volunteer to fight in World War II. Despite 16 being a legal requirement to fight, he simply doctored his age by a few months and went off to France, rifle in hand. While serving, he was wounded, and while in the army hospital, they ran a background check on the young lad before them. Discovering he was barely 16 and had doctored his age to get over to serve in the first place, he was discharged as a wounded serviceman and returned home to Scotland. This did not deter young Willie, however, who was determined to see justice done in the fight against the Axis powers, and he continually reapplied to serve. Later in the war, the authorities relented, and Willie McRae was returned to the war effort and appointed as a naval intelligence officer within the Royal Indian Navy. His time within the Royal Indian Navy became a foundational experience for Willie and his views on the world and justice. This led to a lifelong bond with the country of India, including a friendship with the future Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi. Upon his return to Scotland after the war, Willie undertook his LLB in Scots law, the first step in becoming a solicitor under the Scottish rules graduating in 1949. While studying, he had also established himself as one of the foremost voices within the fledgling Scottish National Party. The Scottish National Party are a Scottish nationalist and social democratic party with a singular focus on gaining Scottish independence from Westminster. They are now the most keenly established of all Scottish political parties, currently holding 61 of the 129 seats in Scottish Parliament and 47 of the 59 seats available to Scotland in Westminster, which is the British Parliament. In the mid-1940s, when Willie McRae began to have increasing influence within the party, however, they had barely existed for a decade and had struggled to garner enough support to make it worthwhile to field candidates in many jurisdictions. A surprise victory in a Motherwell by-election had given them a parliamentary seat. However, a general election three months later resulted in the candidate being ousted to little effect. 
Nonetheless, the party grew surely and steadily. The handsome Willie McRae was becoming a well-known face in public debate, and his keen oration skills worked well both in promoting Scottish independence and presenting cases within the Scottish courts. The law firm he had set up with his friend and business partner, Abraham Levi, soon after qualifying, named Levi and McRae, was fast becoming a force in the Scots law world. In July of 1959, Abraham left the business, leaving Willie McRae in sole control of the firm. A decision showing the esteem in which Willie McRae's abilities were held by his peers. In the late 1950s until 1974, Willie McRae was heavily involved in setting up the mercantile laws of the fledgling state of Israel, as well as being a vocal supporter of the liberation of India. His influence in Israel was such that he was appointed as an honorary fellow in law at the University of Haifa for his contribution to Israel's legal frameworks. His stature in the legal world was immense and his political stature was similarly regarded. In February 1974, he was selected by the SNP to stand as the parliamentary candidate for Ross and Cromarty. He was a relatively distant second in the voting. However, a hung parliament resulted in another general election within the UK in October of the same year. This time, only 663 votes separated him from Hamish Gray of the Conservative Party, with Willie McRae taking over 7,000 votes home himself. Considering that the previous SNP candidate for the region before McRae had only received slightly over 2,000 votes, this was deemed to be significant progress. When allied to Winnie Ewing's shock victory in the Hamilton by-election in 1967, McRae and others like him had their popularity seen as a shot across the bow to traditional British politics. As Willie McRae's near run in 1974 indicated, the independence movement in Scotland was growing at a rate of knots. The issue of self-governance was in every public debate and eventually, the UK government relented and allowed Scotland to hold a referendum as to whether Scotland should be allowed to have its own devolved government. With its own set of prescribed devolved powers, outwith the reach of the UK government. It wasn't true independence on offer, but it was a massive departure from the existing rigid control which the UK government held over Scottish politics. On the 1st of March 1979, 51.62% of the voters said yes, they did want devolved power. However, in a disastrous turn of events, only 64% of voters turned out. This meant that a pre-agreed threshold of 40% of the entire electorate voting for the result was not met, and the result was thrown out. Scotland would have no devolution today, the UK government said. Willie had started to drink quite heavily around this time too. He was a prominent figure within the independence push, 
but his personal situation was becoming more tenuous. He had been given a driving ban for drink driving, and the partners who he had brought on himself within Levi and McRae were understanding, but told him that it couldn't happen again or the reputation of the business would be forever damaged. He then stood for election once more within Ross and Cromarty in late 1979. However, his association with the failed independence bid made him unpopular within the voters, and he finished distantly, once more behind Hamish Gray. To cap off a truly spectacularly awful year, Willie McRae then stood for a non-governmental position as the leader of the SNP. With a third-place finish, his career in politics was in tatters. The legal profession was all that remained to him. Willie McRae was, as his service in World War II demonstrated, a brave man. He never shied away from a fight. With his political career all but gone, and his own firm having to advise him on his drinking, many lesser men would have shied away into obscurity, but not Willie. In 1980, he had cleaned his lifestyle up and embarked on the impassioned defence of the rugged Scottish wild from becoming a nuclear waste ground, and won. The nuclear issue had been something of a hot topic for Willie, and he had suspicions that the government and its agencies were being less than honest about much of what was going on in the industry. He believed that the waste issue went deeper and harboured reservations about the Dunray site up near Furzo on the northernmost coastline of Scotland. He was also a vociferous anti-drug campaigner and involved in many legal efforts to curb the efforts of smugglers and dealers within Scotland. In 1981, he relapsed with his drinking, and a further drink-driving charge while returning from a traditional Burns supper meant that he was left with only two options from his Levi McRae board members. Leave, and the issue would be swept under the carpet. Or stay, and bring the firm and himself into disgrace. Willie McRae quietly packed his box of belongings, and left the offices of the legal stalwart which he had helped found. He returned home to his house in Balvicker Drive, Queen's Park, in the south side of Glasgow to pick up the pieces of his life. Over the next few weeks, Willie attempted to fix his work situation by setting up McRae & Co. at 166 Buchanan Street with a young prodigy he had formed a bond with at Levi & McRae. Ronald Welsh. For the next four years, despite his battle with alcoholism, McRae once again re-established himself as a highly regarded solicitor. His work in the anti-drug field was widely respected, and he had once again taken an interest in the anti-nuclear efforts in Scotland. In one instance, he even used his role as a defence solicitor for a local man who was charged with assaulting a local drug dealer after finding out the man was dealing in his local community, to name various locations around the man's home city where there were suspected drug storage facilities and the addresses of specific dealers. 
He had also taken up a campaign against Dunrain Nuclear Facility in the north of Scotland, which he had set as his next anti-nuclear target. Dunray had been open for over 15 years by this point, but something about the facility had recently captured Willie's attention. He had taken a prominent rollback within the SNP too, albeit without grand designs on standing for election. There were rumours that he was associated with a particularly radical branch of Scottish independence followers called the Scottish National Liberation Army, who had been involved in suspected terrorist activities. He had definitely been involved with a sister organisation who were not terroristic, but considered similarly radical, named Shaw Nagal through his friend Michael Strafern, a well-known crofter who was a major player within the independence scene. Both organisations had been prescribed by the SNP in 1982 as being out with their independence push and members of the groups were unable to seek joint membership within the SNP. This meant that Willie kept his involvement relatively minimal and at arm's length, especially from the SNP higher-ups. There was also some suspicion from those close to him that either his anti-nuclear work or his openness in associating and providing legal advice to radical independence groups had him under surveillance by Special Branch, the Metropolitan Police's units responsible for national security and intelligence within Britain. What was not disputed was that as Willie McRae left rallies, he was trailed by a relatively nondescript Triumph vehicle which bore the registration number PSJ136X. Willie and his advisors had all noticed it. It had, in truth, made little effort to disguise itself. Willie reached out to a friendly police officer who he knew personally. The officer ran the plate for him and the vehicle came up as a quote, blocked vehicle. This was police shorthand for those involved with national security and intelligence. In short, Willie McRae was being tailed by Special Branch, and now he knew it. By 1983, the tail was still firmly on and pressure was mounting on Willie McRae. He had admitted to providing legal advice to both Sean Nagal and the SNLA but said that legal advice was as far as the relationship went. When the SNLA sent letter bombs to Princess Diana and Margaret Thatcher, those associated with the groups, even just as a legal advisor, were being subject to intensive scrutiny. The devices sent to Princess Diana and Thatcher never deployed as intended, however, it was a strike at the heart of the traditional seats of British power and it wouldn't be allowed to go unpunished if they could help it. Willie McRae was starting to find that he was being tailed by not only one, but two special branch vehicles when he was travelling around. And by 1985, he had been requested to attend an interview to discuss his relationship with the founders of the SNLA Adam Busby and David Dinsmore. 
When Willie was being tailed, PSJ-136X was always there, but there was a swapping cast in the second vehicle, which made it difficult to pinpoint which was his second tail. Willie McRae was also certain that the tail was not to do with the SNLA. He thought it seemed convenient as an excuse, but felt that his work against Dun Ray was the real reason he was being targeted. By 1985, Willie McRae was once again fully involved in his personal investigation into the Dunray nuclear facility, with his personal demons somewhat tamed by the immersion in his work. On Friday, the 5th of April of that year, it seemed to those around him that he had finally found something to bring against Dunray. Without telling anyone exactly what he meant, an elated Willie McRae, carrying a thick dossier of paperwork, announced to his office that he had them. When pressed about what he meant, he simply smiled, packed up his things and headed out of the office for the weekend with the dossier under his arm. Willie planned on heading up to his holiday home in the Kintail area of Russia on the northwest coast of Scotland around 70 miles from the city of Inverness. Over the previous years, he had reconnected with the area, having discovered he had family members who hailed from the region. Before setting off, he stopped at a local off-sales in the Queen's Park area of Glasgow. He was spotted there by a local policeman, Donald Morrison, who greeted Willie. Willie, he noted, had two bottles of single malt whiskey under his arm as he stopped. He had tamed his demons, but not fully exercised them, it seemed. Willie again noted to Donald Morrison that he had found something exciting and explosive which he would soon share with the world. Donald wished him luck and the pair parted, with Willie returning to his Volvo car and setting off. Donald wasn't familiar with the special branch tail which Willie himself no longer particularly noticed and found it confusing as to why two vehicles parked nearby to Willie's set off in close proximity when he took to the road. The route from Glasgow to Kintail takes drivers along the A82, then the A87, then finally up through the Rosher villages towards Dorney. Then nearby to the eastern edge of Loch Duke lies the small collection of houses and hotels which form Kintail. Willie McRae, though, would never complete this journey. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. 
Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. On the 6th of April, 1985, at near to midday, Alan Crow and his wife Barbara were driving by Loch Loyne on the A87 near Invergarry. Alan was a 61-year-old Air Force pilot from Australia who was living in Bracknell with his wife on an RAF base while he trained the pilots there. The pair had taken advantage of some leave time to head up and explore the north of Scotland a place where they had always wanted to visit. The pair seen what looked like a car which had run off the road and into a ditch, but it was quite far from their vantage point and being unsure whether they were just mistaking something innocuous for something sinister, they drove onwards. Within a few miles, Barbara had felt pangs of guilt and asked Alan to turn around. Better to turn back and be wrong then drive on and leave someone in need of help to the mercy of the wild Scottish landscape, she reasoned. He turned his car around and they drove back past their initial viewpoint and down nearby to the point of interest. What they discovered was a badly damaged Volvo with the rear windscreen completely smashed through. The man inside was breathing, but in terrible shape. Realising that the situation was particularly grave, they ran back to the carriageway they had come from to flag down a vehicle. Given how remote the area was, it took a couple of minutes before another vehicle arrived. To their relief, when they flagged the car down, one of the passengers, Dorothy Messer, declared she was a doctor. The remainder of the passengers came to provide what assistance they could. As they approached the car, battered as it was, one of the passengers from the flagged down car, David Coots, spotted a couple of SNP stickers emblazoned on the stricken vehicle. Coots himself was a local councillor for the SNP from the Dundee region. When David Coots investigated the inside of the car, he saw to his horror that the man behind the wheel was the SNP stalwart, Willie McRae. The driver's side door was jammed shut 
due to the force of the impact the vehicle had taken, and to administer aid, Dorothy Messer had to enter the car from the passenger side door at the front of the vehicle. As she leaned across, she could sense vital signs from Willie McRae, albeit faint. He was sodden from the rain having seeped into the car and bloodstained. He had also urinated and defecated himself in the time since the impact. His eyes, Dorothy noted, were significantly dilated, which may have indicated he had suffered some form of neurological damage. While Dorothy provided life-saving treatment, one of the passengers took the car to find a phone booth and call for assistance. By 2pm, assistance was arriving and Willie McRae's family were informed he had been involved in a serious motor incident only involving his vehicle. Given the scene looked little more than an accident, an ambulance attended to take Willie McRae to hospital and a skeleton police scene of crime attended to rule out something more sinister. David Coots had noticed a small pile of papers and a wristwatch around 20 feet from the vehicle, as if they had been thrown clear. These findings were also noted by the attending officers from the Northern Constabulary as being present. The ambulance initially dropped Willie at Ragmore Hospital in Inverness. However, his rapidly deteriorating condition meant that he was placed on an onward journey to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary by 5.10pm. While there, a nurse checking over the handover forms from Ragmore decided to dig deeper into the man before her. When sent for additional tests and x-rays, it was discovered that the cause of Willie McRae's rapid deterioration was not solely related to the violent impact of the car. He had a gunshot wound to the head. Somewhere between 5.10pm and 7pm, Aberdeen Royal Infirmary informed the local police that the case involved more than a simple road traffic accident and that the man in question had a gunshot wound. Having already cleared the scene earlier, Chief Inspector and Head of CID Colin MacDonald re-summoned his team to the site to establish control. By the 7th of April, Willie McRae's health was deteriorating rapidly and his brother, Dr Fergus McRae, had been summoned to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary to make medical decisions on his behalf. Fergus elected to withdraw life-sustaining support for Willie as it was deemed he had no real chance of recovery from his injuries. The police interviewed Fergus, who was one of the people who knew Willie best. What Fergus informed them gave them cause for concern, but also made them reconsider opening the investigation in respect of a potential crime. Fergus noted to the police that his brother had been suicidal recently and that he had suffered mood swings, including suicidal thoughts in the years running up to April 1985 as he battled both personal and professional problems as well as his alcoholism. He also told them that recently, Willie had stayed with a friend of his named Howard Singerman and in a drunken stupor, lit a cigarette which nearly burnt down a bedroom in the man's home. 
When asked whether Willie kept guns, Fergus told them that Willie did actually have an unregistered weapon, which he had been given by his friends in the Indian resistance movement. Fergus told them that in the previous couple of years, he had had to take the gun off Willie, fearful that he may use it to end his own life. However, he had eventually returned it when he deemed Willie's mental state had improved. Fergus also told them that when the alcohol took hold, sometimes these thoughts would return. When they asked whether the gun was a revolver-style pistol, Fergus confirmed that it was, going so far as to tell them it was a particularly distinctive seven-shot revolver, Smith & Wesson. The bullet which had killed Willie McRae, the police informed him, had likely been fired from a revolver-style pistol. With the information the police had pieced together from the scene and from Fergus McRae, a picture was starting to form. Willie McRae, driving up to Contail on desolate and lonely roads, had decided to open one of the two bottles of whiskey within his vehicle and take a nip while he was driving. This had turned into more and more, and eventually, on the stretch of road at Loch Loin, he had swerved off the carriageway and into the ditch below. His car had rolled upon impact, causing the visible damage. Willie McRae had likely been, in this version of events, injured significantly by the crash, but not mortally. Sitting in the driver's seat, dazed and confused, Willie McRae began to realise the enormity of what had happened. Knowing that he was over the drink drive limit, the crash would be fatal to his career. He had already had two drink driving offences on his record, and in Scots law at the time, a third would have likely seen him serve jail time. It would have also been the end of his practising certificate from the Law Society of Scotland, who would, in the event of such a prosecution, deem him unfit to represent the profession. It would also do huge damage to the anti-nuclear cause, giving the powerful nuclear lobby an easy target for point scoring. Then, they surmised, in a moment of awful clarity, he removed the gun he owned illegally from where he kept it within his vehicle, turned it upon himself and fired. The police, now certain that their version of events was correct, and that Willie McRae had killed himself, set off in search of the weapon itself. The gun which Willie McRae illegally possessed was discovered nearby to the site of his vehicle. Initial forensic analysis confirmed that the gun had recently fired two bullets. One of them, the fatal bullet recovered from Willie McRae himself, and the gun itself had its identity confirmed by Fergus McRae. It was at this point that the first discrepancy between the notion of suicide promoted by the police and murder promoted by those sceptical of the facts began to emerge. The gun was discovered 60 feet from the location of Willie McRae's Volvo car and the second bullet missing from the chamber was nowhere to be seen. When asked by reporters about the distance between the gun and the vehicle, the officers pointed to a nearby burn, which they felt must have carried the gun along in its current, 
to the location in which it was found. Analysis of the burn and its current did not tally well, given it lacked the strength in its current to move a decently heavy chunk of metal such a distance in such a short period of time. When asked about the second bullet, they promoted the idea that perhaps he had fired the first bullet as a test to ensure the weapon would fire correctly when he fired the next to take his own life. One fact which was not noticed was that the wristwatch and the stack of papers which had been noted by David Coots and the first attending officers had never been checked into evidence. The dossier which staff at McCree & Co had seen under his arm as he left the office was never noted in the first place, nor discovered at the scene. At around 3pm, the vehicle was removed by a local vehicle recovery service. Despite the discrepancies, on the 8th of April 1985, after Willie McCrae's post-mortem examination, the Procurator Fiscal Thomas Aitchison declared the incident to be fully investigated and that no suspicious circumstances had been found, with the cause of death being a bullet wound to the temple which had caused damage to the brain. On the 10th of April, final ballistic reports arrived with the fiscal. Despite his declaration two days previously that the incident was fully investigated, while the report did not contradict this, the report being submitted after a full investigation seemed to contradict the fiscal's position. Surely, a full investigation would have required the final ballistics report and not just a preliminary findings report. Nonetheless, Fergus McRae accepted the position of the fiscal's office and the investigation into Willie McRae's death was closed entirely, with a verdict of death by suicide recorded. In the eyes of the fiscal, for a man like Willie McRae, his life mattered less to him than keeping his causes beyond reproach and his professional reputation intact, and he had turned the gun found nearby to his car on himself in much the fashion suggested to him by the investigating officers. The unusual positioning of the gun relative to the vehicle, the tailing special branch vehicles, the missing supposed test fire bullet and the vanishing paperwork did not warrant further investigation in his opinion. Public opinion on the McRae case was split, as many issues involving political figures often are, right from the outset. Many of those close to him within the SNP and the broader independence movement felt that the whole issue had been resolved far too quickly, with only a surface-level scratch performed where an industrial-level dig was needed. Speculation about special branch involvement in his death and how much easier the nuclear industry would have it with Willie out the way ran rampant. Fergus McRae and the McRae family, however, were satisfied with the police findings. Private investigations went on in the background by those who still cared enough to pry. One interesting finding was discovered in 1990, whereby two local vehicle recovery services were contacted about the recovery of Willie McRae's vehicle, and both 
claimed to have been the firm who had attended site. Little further information was given by both firms, save to confirm that they had attended site. One fact of interest was that one firm stated they had attended on the Saturday, which was the 6th of April, while the other were certain it had attended on the Sunday, which was the 7th. The statement of the first firm seemed at odds with the fact that the investigating team were still working at the scene near the vehicle on Sunday the 7th, and the removal of the vehicle had been documented to have taken place sometime around 3pm on this date. Private speculation at this point began to ramp up. What if the police had removed Willie's vehicle early on the Saturday, convinced it was a routine road traffic accident, then privately returned it without telling anyone some point that evening, once it had become apparent that the cause of death was not the impact of the vehicle, but the gunshot wound to the head. In the remoteness of the Scottish Highlands, it wasn't impossible to think such a thing could take place and not be discovered. It would explain two major gaps in the evidence. Firstly, the car may have been placed in a spot where someone remembered the vehicle being, rather than where it precisely was. Say for instance, 60 feet to the side. Would that explain the positioning of Willie McRae's gun? If this was the case, what evidence could have been trampled underfoot by new officers attending the scene, unaware they were on top of the original crash site? Perhaps the second bullet was 60 feet away too, trodden deep underfoot in wet marsh by the boots of unsuspecting officers. Secondly, it would explain the statements by the recovery companies, given one may have attended on Saturday, then returned the vehicle on Saturday night for the more in-depth investigation, and another attended on Sunday to remove the vehicle once the new on-scene investigation was completed. Nonetheless, these fresh findings were largely ignored from those in power. The case of anti-nuclear campaigner Hilda Morell had always drawn strong parallels to Willie McRae's case. Hilda had been due to speak before the Sizewell B inquiry into a new British nuclear power plant in 1984. The day before she was due to appear at the inquiry, Hilda was kidnapped within her own vehicle and discovered dead days later, having been viciously stabbed and beaten before being left to die from hypothermia. The proximity with Willie's case and the positions which Hilda had taken meant many of those close to her also thought that she had put herself firmly in the sights of the security services and had been killed before she could do too much damage to the relentless British nuclear march. However, in 2003, a local labourer named Andrew George, who had only been 16 at the time of Hilda's murder, was charged with the crime having been linked by DNA evidence. In May of 2005, he was found guilty on all charges. It was under this post-conviction climate that then-Solicitor-General Elish Angelini opted to make a public statement that Willie McRae had never been under special branch surveillance and that the Crown were comfortable with the results of the investigation. 
quite where Angelina got her information that Special Branch were not running surveillance on Willie McRae was cast into doubt when she refused to identify how she had obtained this information, and the Metropolitan Police confirmed they had not received any such request from her office. Perhaps the scepticism busting conviction of Hilda Morell's very ordinary and very unspecial branch killer provided just the front to tar Willie McRae's death with the same brush. In 2009, Jean McLennan covered the case of Willie McRae in her true crime collection, Blood in the Glens. While disagreeing with the conspiratorial narrative in relation to Willie's death, Jean largely agreed special branch surveillance was possible. She also speculated whether Willie McRae's gotcha moment, as he left McRae and Co. all those years ago, had come from his discovery of the undocumented waste shaft at Dunray Nuclear Facility, which had been quietly poisoning the landscape around the facility since its inception. Given the employees were sworn under the Official Secrets Act, the waste pipe had never come into public consciousness despite an explosion in 1977 which resulted in its use being curtailed. Despite the shaft's shutdown as a waste pipe in 1977, the undisguisable truth in its outflow eventually exposed its existence given the Geiger counter readings in the area. The eventual cleanup operation has put final reparation costs close to £20 million. Unlike Jean McLennan, many commentators have said that finding such a secret out would have clearly put Willie McRae in danger. A cold case review was commissioned in 2011, whereby two key further facts were discovered. Ian Fraser a former policeman and private investigator came forward to state that he had been paid by an anonymous party to tail Willie McRae from SNP HQ to an event in Edinburgh in the weeks preceding his death. He had sent his report to a PO box in Newcastle and received a payment in return. Further contact was never sought in the weeks between the report and Willie's death. The second fact of interest was Donald Morrison's testimony. Donald had seen Willie in Queen's Park on the day before his discovery near Loch Loin. He had tried to tell the authorities of the exchange multiple times and that Willie had been in good spirits and noted his dossier to him. He also mentioned the two cartel he had seen heading off after Willie McRae. Despite this, Nobody seemed interested in talking with him. Was this just an oversight? The whole situation was muddied further by Adam Busby, one of the founders of the SNLA, who said that Willie provided more than just legal advice to them and Sean Agal, but had suggested targets to them and provided capital to both organisations. He also stated his belief that Willie had shot himself accidentally after a scuffle with the men tailing him, having been run off the road by the pair. In 2015, a long-held suspicion about the case appeared to be confirmed 
Scott London's Sunday, but approved a Freedom of Information request to see the official case file regarding Willie McRae. The official statement showed Willie McRae's Volvo had been initially removed from the scene after he was taken to Ragmore Hospital. Scotland on Sunday also tracked down Alan and Barbara Crow, who had discovered Willie McRae's car that day. They mentioned returning the following day to pick up gloves which Alan had dropped at the scene while providing aid to Willie McRae. The vehicle was there. The official statement had never been amended to show that the vehicle was returned to the site upon the discovery of the severity of the situation. John Finney, a member of the Scottish Parliament for the Highlands and Islands, came forward to state the statement of the Crows, tallied in with what a former high-ranking officer in the Northern Constabulary had confirmed to him in 2010, and that was that the vehicle had been removed and returned on Saturday the 6th. The Crows also told Scotland on Sunday that they never had their details formally taken or that they had given signed witness statements. This did not tally in with the case file, which showed two signed witness statements given by Alan and Barbara Crow. The investigation did not seem well managed to those looking in from the outside. Special branch spooks and surveillance shadowy figures in the nuclear industry, supposed terrorist links, hidden details in the crime scene, moved evidence, missing and misleading statements, missing bullets, and a full investigation closed two days before the final ballistics report. It seemed like grounds for a reopening of the investigation, or at least a fatal accident inquiry in the eyes of John Finney, who wrote to the Crown Office to demand just that. Nonetheless, the government and the Crown remained steadfast that the evidence did not warrant re-examination and did not undermine their findings. They said the same in 2016, when a Sunday Herald Freedom of Information request uncovered that the gun recovered from the scene had never been forensically analysed for fingerprints. Then in 2018, when Catherine McGonagall, the nurse who had treated Willie McRae in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, stated that the bullet had been fired through the side of the neck rather than the temple was recorded on the post-mortem, the new outcry was met only with silence. This leaves the situation no further forward than it was in 1985. There remains only a few plausible possibilities in terms of what happened to Willie McRae. One is that Willie McRae really did kill himself, having crashed drunk next to Loch Loin, taking his discovered secrets to the grave. Another is that he was killed by shadowy governmental agents or nuclear stakeholders to make his secrets go to the grave with him. While with modern perspective, a blatant murder committed by Special Branch or another government agency to a private citizen seems outlandish, consideration must be given to the 2006 discovery 
of an RUC special branch agent named Billy Stobie in Northern Ireland, who was involved in procuring the weapons used in a murder for the Belfast UVF and was suspected of some level of involvement in more than a dozen more murders whilst working for Special Branch. Investigations by The Guardian found similar stories across the entire island, just across the water. Is it such a stretch of the imagination to think that it could happen in Scotland? Winnie Ewing of the SNP, who was also a well-respected solicitor, even offered to act as a beacon of trust. Reviewing the case file herself, and if the evidence was clear and apparent, telling that to followers of the SNP, offering a chance to put the case to bed once and for all, but her request fell on deaf ears. There are two other theories which do hold some sway within those interested by the case. One relates to the drug dealers exposed by Willie McRae in court defending the local man who had bloodied one's nose. The police had acted on the information supplied by Willie McRae and those involved were understandably none too pleased. Some online think that it is plausible that having spotted Willie McRae driving up north, they set a tail on him and ran him off the road. Once there, finding a gun in his car presented them with an opportunity to finish off a problem once and for all. A final theory was that Willie McRae had uncovered evidence of parliamentary figures who had been involved in a child molestation ring, which was the root cause of his special branch tale rather than his anti-nuclear works. Fiona Borders, whose husband James was a high-ranking barrister involved in child sex abuse and exploitation cases, stated she had received information that Willie McRae had been involved in the investigation of this and had recently received damning evidence of involvement at the highest echelons of power. No evidence to substantiate her claim has ever been provided. No matter how he passed, Willie McRae's death was a tragedy of immense proportions. He was a wonderful orator and defended Davids against their personal Goliaths while taking on his own demons. Willie McRae also had a love for truth and the devil in the detail. Surely, the public deserved to see the full truth in his death, rather than the smoke and mirrors which the establishment seemed to be content with currently. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.